Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 15. We're going to finish up. uh, And when we get done with chapter 15, we will be roughly 66% of the way through the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going to have a great time doing it. Um, Just a quick thought I had today. There is a being that is very good at his job. And right now his job is to discourage saints particularly American saints, because he has flooded the market with uh, falsehoods. Uh, Truth is there and falsehood. And so we as Americans uh, have a difficult time uh, in an unusual way. Prosperity brings its own vices and its own difficulties. And so I want to encourage you that that being is Satan. If you feel depressed or you feel discouraged, just know this. It's on purpose. That is being done to you on purpose, to feel like you can't do anything, there's no hope. That's coming from Satan. And he is a liar. He's the father of lies. He is a deceiver. And so you don't have to worry. Um, when you feel that way, it's natural and normal here. And I think probably globally, to a large degree, it's, it's happening everywhere. But, but uh, it's weird here because there's still, we have the freedom to worship. We have the freedom to read our Bibles, to gather a symbol, to hand out gospel tracts and witness to our friends. But there's a weird feeling that's in the air. Anybody else feel that? It feels like, what is going on? Um, it's because of Satan. That is the reason. It's um, it, Don't get discouraged. Just look at it and say, oh, that's why I feel this way. Because he wants you to feel that way. So don't get discouraged. Go back to the Word of God and stick at it. You take one step closer to the Lord. And thank you, Brother Ron, for, for uh, letting folks know that's what it is, the theme for next year. And I just am encouraged by hearing in Normans tonight. Because um, you don't know, number one, when you're going to die. Number two, you don't know when the Lord's coming back. However, you know that if the Lord doesn't come back, you are going to die. And so we have X amount of time. So let's be faithful. Let's give all we can, do what we can while we're still alive. And when we get to heaven, I can guarantee you, you're not going to be looking back wishing you were here. And so it's going to be a wonderful time. So I can tell some of you are discouraged right now. I can see it in your face. And you know why? The devil wants you to be discouraged and depressed. And you've worked hard all day long. So I'm going to give you a little Christian sermonette that will turn you into a Christianette. And you can go home and smoke your cigarette. Amen? What do you think about that? Revelation chapter 15. We've looked at the great and marvelous wrath of God. And uh, first we talked about the unveiling of the great and marvelous sign in heaven. Secondly, the opening of the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. In heaven, He says in verse 5, After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And we saw last time, John saw the true tabernacle in heaven, of which the earthly temples are just pictures. The one in heaven is the prototype. And uh, here he's referring not just to the temple, but the innermost sanctum in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And in that, the Ark of the Covenant is there, and it contains, among other things, the tables of stone. And that is called the Law uh, or the Testimony. You'll find that over and over again in the Old Testament, the Testimony. Now, notice it says the temple was opened when Christ died on the cross. The veil of the temple was rent in 
twain from top to bottom. And ever since then, every person that has lived since that time has had access to the Holy of Holies. It's been opened to them through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And you can go in and you can be uh, at peace with God. And our job is to tell people that they have opportunity to be at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because Christ's blood was shed, God has opened his arms of love and mercy and forgiveness. And so, uh, does God love the world? Yes, he does. He loves the world through the person of Jesus Christ. And does he love the world now? Well, is the opportunity for someone to be saved still available? Yes, it is. So, he does love the world. He loves the world in Jesus Christ, and his arms are open wide. But John here is shown a new time, a, a, a future time, during the second half of the tribulation, where the, temp- the tabernacle will open again, but this time it's not open for love and grace. This time it's open for wrath. God is going to pour out his wrath on this world like it's never been known. Every person who's rejected the grace and mercy and love of God is going to be judged by God. And he's going to be judged by that testimony that's in the tabernacle, that's in the Holy of Holies. And it's interesting how, I don't know if you're like me, there's something about the tabernacle in the wilderness that seems almost more exclusive and and almost maybe a little holier than even the temple of God in heaven and the throne room of God himself. And I don't know if that's a propensity of humans to, to, to go after the, the copy. I, I don't know what it is. But it's like someone said that they had a, a comic strip or a cartoon uh, that was made. And someone said, I think I've told you this many times. But the, the idea is there's two lines. And one line was um, books about heaven. And the other was a door, a line for heaven itself. And there was all kinds of people in the line for books about heaven. And it's just interesting how we would want to read books about the Bible and not read the Bible itself. And how we want to, to, to ask God in some mystical, interesting way to do something amazing um, that he's done for someone else rather than talk to God directly. And so what's interesting here is that the prototype, the actual presence in the throne room of God is in heaven and the tabernacle was a picture of that. It was God's way of reaching out to us because we couldn't come to heaven. So the God of heaven came to us. But here, it's a different story altogether because the tabernacle is open not for people to come in. Because as we'll see, no man can go in. But what happens is these angels are going to go out with the wrath of God. So let's see, first of all, letter A, the heavenly messengers of the wrath of God. It says in verse number six, the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues, seven angels emphasizing perfection in their purpose. God uses uh, the term seven over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. And it just means there's going to be no stone left unturned in God's execution of his wrath. In his judgment. Number two, they're commissioned in the innermost, innermost sanctum of God's holiness. This is where they're coming from. The seven angels are coming out of the temple. These are the ones that are going to actually pour God's wrath upon the earth. And uh, they have been commissioned in the innermost 
sanctuary, the holy of holies. Right in front of God, he has commissioned them to bring this terrible devastation. This is not something where God just um, gets mad one day and just shoots lightning bolts. Watch the progression here. You've got the seven vials that are now filled. So it's taken 6,000 years of human history to fill those up to the brink. And then when he prepares to send them out, he is going to send them by means of these seven angels. And uh, just as a very practical side point, uh, is there a time for anger? Yes, there is. But he said, be ye angry and sin not. So if you're the kind of person that flies off the handle, take a lesson from God and realize how much it takes to get him so mad that he brings judgment. And if you're the kind of person that brings judgment arbitrarily, don't be surprised if people don't want to be around you. I mean, what's amazing about God is he is love and he is wrath at the same time. Why? Because he is unparalleled in both. His love is so large. His wrath is so large. But what you know about this, about God, he is fair and he is just. He will tell you and tell you and tell you and tell you and tell you so many times. I mean, we've been reading about this in the church age for 2,000 years, that his wrath is going to fill up. And there's going to come a point when it's done. No more mercy. No more love. Well, how could God? He's been telling you for 2,000 years. He, ha- he is covered. You want to talk? It's not even fine print. It's very clear, bold print going into all the world. His Bible that tells us he's coming and he is not going to be happy. So take that as a practical lesson. Put some space in between. How many of you have heard that count to 10 before you say it? Right? How about count to 10 for 10 days? God's been counting to 10 for 2,000 years. And he has his, his wrath is completely under control. But it's not going down, it's going up. It's not disappearing. See, the God of, of Islam can just say, all right, just forget it. I know you sinned against me, but let's just say it never happened. He's not just. There's no payment for sin. He doesn't have to pay for sin. He can do it every once. That's the difference between the true God and a false God. A false God is arbitrary and capricious and just does whatever he wants. And if you're in a position of leadership, uh, whether that be a, a mom with your children or a father in a home or a boss, you can't be arbitrary. You can't just say, well, I'm sick and tired of it. I get to be mad because I'm in charge. Uh, that is not very just. It's certainly not godlike. God says, hey, I want to I I tell you what I'm going to do. If you do this, this is what I'm going to do. And he gives you space. But when it happens, wow, fur starts to fly. So they're commissioned here. And notice that the, the, where this comes from, here's a good point. The wrath of God proceeds from his holiness. His wrath comes from his holiness. Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.18, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That is where, that's when God is mad. He's not mad because uh, he just wants his way. 
He's mad because there is right and wrong and people are constantly pushing against the right. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. It says, or, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering? God is rich in goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. People think, well, I didn't get in trouble for it, so therefore it's okay. No, God is saying, you didn't get in trouble for it because you're an idiot, and I want to give you time to realize that you're an idiot. So you can turn around. Aren't you glad that God didn't send you to hell the first time you sinned? We would all be in hell. But he is rich in goodness and forbearance. What people, people look at God, uh, they say, you know, all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation. And they, they think that because God hasn't done anything to judge this earth in thousands of years like he did with the flood, because of that, then God is weak. You know what that is? That's a punk talking to somebody who knows how to control himself. And not just some, anyone. That's Shimei cursing David. David the king who had all the authority in the land. And Shimei is saying, you're a bloody man. You're a deceitful man. I'm glad you lost the kingdom. And Joab said, you want me to go cut his head off? I'd be happy to do it. It'd be an honor. The ministry of chopping heads off. He said, no, don't worry about it. That's God. You know what we do as believers? We look at other people that are doing stuff they shouldn't do. And we say, Lord, bring the fire. Yeah. And the Lord said, leave them alone. They're idiots. David went even further than that. David as a human, not God. David as a human said, what if God told them to curse me? That's another level altogether, Christians. To believe that God could use someone to do something to hurt you. Well, God would never. Well, David was pretty close to to God. And he gave God the benefit of the doubt that he was in control, even in a situation where someone was attacking him. I don't know if I'm there. I'm pretty sure I'm not there. Because I know this, if you cross me, you're wrong. Why? I'm right. This we know. This is foundational. I'm right. And if you cross me, it must mean you're wrong. You know what David said? If you cross me, maybe God told you to cross me. We've got to remember that. This this is the kind of long-suffering and forbearance that our God has. And David was a man after God's own heart. But notice what's happening while God is forbearing. Verse 5, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart. What is impenitent? Will not repent. Will not show penance. An impenitent heart, after thy hardness, an impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You know, at the grocery store, they ask, do you want to round up for charity? You know, every time we push back against God, we're rounding up for wrath. That's what they're doing. Except not going to the charity, it's going in my bank account. It's filling up the wrath of God. Every time. He said, treasurest up unto thyself. And what is it? What's against? That means it's, it's for, it's being saved for the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, that's where Americans struggle. They don't believe in righteous judgment. They believe, well, maybe they do believe it for somebody else. But you're talking about judging me? There's no such thing as righteous judgment. Give me another chance. Give me another chance. But here the Lord said, my judgment is righteous. 
And what will he do? Verse 6. Who will render to every man according, not to God's whims, not according even to God's desires, he will render to every man according to his deeds. This is the righteous judgment of God that's been filling up in those vials. Number three on your, on your uh, outline, notice that they are moving away from the mercy seat. They're coming out of the temple. The mercy seat is the throne of God. It's where God sits. And uh, they're, they're not coming out as ministers of grace. That time is done. They're coming out as messengers of wrath. And so he sees these seven angels proceeding from the mercy seat where God sits, where God for 2,000 years has invited all people to come and to be saved and partake in his riches. But these people in the tribulation, just like people today, they're hardening their heart and they refuse to repent. Refuse. You see, our job, by the way, our job is to help bring people to a point where they recognize what it means to repent and believe. Some people think that repenting means you need to ask God to forgive you of all the sins that you've ever done, and you need to name those sins and say that you're sorry for them. And the problem with that is you can't remember all your sins, number one. And number two, your sorrow for sin can't pay for anything. Right? You can't be sorry enough to earn heaven. Right? So that's where the danger of telling people, you need to repent, you need to repent. In other words, you need to stop sinning so that you can get saved. You see what I'm saying? People say, you better repent when you get saved. Repent of what? Repent, yes. This is what you repent of. You repent of your own understanding of how you're going to get to heaven. It's repenting of your own works, repenting of your own goodness, repenting of your own righteousness, Repenting of your own plan to get to heaven. That's what you repent of. And by the way, that of course that includes sin. But didn't he say all, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags? We think, well, we need to repent of your adultery and of your, uh, 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 of your thievery and repent of, of, of drunkenness and repent of all those things and turn to Jesus. Yeah, but what about the good things that you do? You know what's interesting about humans? It doesn't matter how many sins they have. They always can think of a way in which they are better than someone else. You need to repent of that. See, that's the real sin. Somehow you think you could stack up against other people. That's the reason why sinners, many times, hardened sinners, can actually come to Christ easier because they finally will realize who they are and stop lying to themselves. Right? Once you realize, I am wrong. You see, that's the reason why we have to get close to people, close enough to share with them that you can't make it on your own and your own desire, that desire inside to be good enough is what you're supposed to repent of. That's why you find that repentance and belief in Jesus Christ are two sides of the same coin. You can't truly repent of what you want and, and believe on, without believing on Jesus Christ. You're turning from yourself and your ways, and you're turning to him at the same time. Otherwise, what you end up with is people saying, well, I've I've repented, but I'm not saved yet. What are you talking about? if, If you've turned away from something, what have you turned to? That, that, that's why turning away from yourself and your sin and everything, it, repentance is believing on Jesus Christ. It's two sides of the same coin. The problem is we tell people they can believe on Jesus Christ without ever having to stop trusting themselves. 
You've got to get to a point where you realize your religion is not going to save you. Your church attendance, your good works, whatever it is, nothing will save you except Jesus. So when you turn from that and turn to Jesus, you're saved. And uh, it's two sides. It's not really the theme here, but the idea, uh, the sub-theme is these people will not repent. And, uh, and that's what he says in Romans. That's what we're dealing with in the book of Revelation as well, 15. Now, I want to read something for, from you, uh, from Donald Barnhouse for you. Very interesting quote. I put it in there just so you could have it take with you. He says this, Will God give man brains to see these things? And will man then fail to exercise his will toward that God? The sorrowful answer is that both of these things are true. God will give a man brains to smelt iron and make a hammer, head, and nails. God will grow a tree and give man strength to cut it down and brains to fashion a hammer handle from its wood. And when man has the hammer and the nails, God will put out his hand and let man drive nails through it and place them on a cross in the supreme demonstration that men are without excuse. Isn't that good? That's exactly what happens. Why are people in so much turmoil? Well, you could tell whether a person knows God or not. If a person looks at his life and says, I've never done anything to, to deserve this. I'm completely innocent. They don't know much about God. You see, I know this. While I don't deserve, I feel I don't deserve some stuff that's happened to me, I also know that I've gotten away with some stuff that I shouldn't have. And if you don't believe that, you're not being honest with yourself. Once you understand that, you can start drawing nigh to God because it takes humility to come to God. And humility says, I'm not that great. In fact, the more humble you are, the more you know that you're not great. And if there's any area in your life where you feel like you're kind of great in that area, you don't need God. In fact, you don't want God. Why? Because you're kind of great. It's, it's an interesting thing. Here, these people, they're going through the tribulation and they will not turn from God. There is an angel that flies in the, in the heaven with the everlasting God, uh, everlasting gospel saying, fear God and keep his commandments. Literally, you want to, you know, we always talk about, I wish God would show up in the sky. And here he is. You know, it's like going to a mud hens game. And there's the, there's the plane with the, you know, fear God and keep his commandments. Except it's an angel that's flying. And yet these people will not repent. They will not turn. Now let's go back to Revelation 15. Let's see number 4. In chapter 15, verse 6, it says, uh, The seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. So notice that they are dressed as priests. And I I want you to see that because you'll have a good cross-reference in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. Leviticus, chapter 16, look at verse number 3. These angels are coming out of the temple, and they are dressed like priests. Look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse number 3. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering, the holy place, right? And a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with the linen miter shall he be attired. By the way, you ever heard someone talk about miters, you know, those uh, miter hats? What are they called? What are they called? Like uh, mortarboard. There we go. I had to think of it. Um, from like the, uh, uh, my brain is not working tonight. Um, 
what are they? The secret society. The, um, the Masons. Thank you. Yeah, when they wear the mortar. And I've heard people say, well, we shouldn't wear those. Those are mitres. Those are, those are, that comes from the Masons. No, no, no. The Masons got it from God. That's where they got it from. Did you notice that he has the mitre on his head? Um, that's why we got to be careful of, of, of just reject. You got to think again, like think beyond the thing that the guy says on the blog. Well, you know, YouTube video. So confident, you know, you just got to think one more thought. And then a lot of times that stuff falls away. So here he's wearing this linen mitre. And uh, it's, these are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in, in water and so put them on. So, so Joseph Smith, you know, with the, we talk about the holy underwear and so forth. He got that out of the Old Testament. He got it from this passage of scripture right here. And so, uh, you know, he, he was an idiot, but a lot of people like him. And uh, I wouldn't say that to a Mormon. I wouldn't say that to a Mormon. They just, they couldn't handle it. Uh, but, but it's interesting. Notice what he's wearing. Holy linen coat, linen breeches, uh, linen girdle, and, and uh, linen mitre. So what you have here is a priest, and these seven angels are dressed that way. Now, we'll say this. The seven angels are not mimicking the priests. It's the other way around. The priests are mimicking the angels. And, and what's, what we find here is if you're going to do a specific job, you have to be girded a certain way. So if, you know, you ever uh, watch documentaries on the Navy SEALs or um, watch the, you know, stories about the uh, 101st Airborne when they parachuted behind the lines in Normandy. You know what? Those guys were, were so, they had so many things on. In fact, they say right before the flight, they had, to, had them put these leg bags on. And uh, they had their, you know, rifle on it disassembled, and they, they had all kinds of everything that, that was packed in there. Why? They were going in to do a very specific job, so they were girded a certain way. And you can watch. I mean, they'll, they'll carry 100, you know, 150 pounds of equipment, and it's because they have a very special mission. And that's what we find with the priests. The priests were not carrying a bunch of stuff, but the clothes they wore were telling a story that what they were doing was very, very important. And that's what we have here. The pure and white linen shows the purity of their intent. Uh, Even, you know, doctors, you know, white coats that they wear are not because they need to wear white coats. It's to tell us that they know what they're doing. That's why they wear white coats. And, and by the way, that stuff, you know, no doubt would be derived from things like this. Very specific uh, uniform. And, and so this is what they're doing. The, the, uh, the angels are wearing pure and white linen, even though what they're about to do is announce a bloodbath on the earth. And it shows that, that what they're doing is right. And we can't imagine this. It's very difficult. But what they're doing is Right. The girdle represents the restraint, the restraint under which they operate, okay? So in other words, they're not just flying off at the handle. It's very specific. And we find in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus Christ wore a a golden girdle as well. All right, letter B. We've talked about the messengers of the wrath of God. Now look at the mediators. This is back to Revelation 15. Revelation chapter 15, verse number 7. Let me take a drink of water. Look what it says. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full uh, of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Notice that little phrase, who liveth forever and ever. God's judgment 
has everlasting consequences. But I want you to see, first of all, that these four beasts are tied to God's holiness and thus his wrath. Go back to chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> we find the four beasts there in Revelation chapter 4. Look at verse 6, 4, 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now we get the idea that there's four of them, possibly at the four corners there's one each. And the first beast was, a, was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So they are tied to the holiness of God, these beasts. Uh, and they're, they're constantly saying, holy, holy, holy. What is the connection that they have? I don't know, but I'll give you some speculation. What can, what's Revelation like without a little speculation? Well, there's how many beasts, does it say? Four beasts. And we know that these are the cherubim, described in the Old Testament as the cherubim, these beasts. And uh, there was originally not just four, there was five. Because we know that Satan himself was called the anointed cherub that covereth. And uh, it's interesting that he was the one that covereth because when we get to the tabernacle, we have how many cherubim at the mercy seat? Does anybody remember? There's two. They're facing in. And uh, what does the mercy seat represent from heaven? Anybody remember? It's what a king sits on. A throne. It's his throne. Uh, it is the throne of God. And the cherubim are hovering over. What's interesting is that in uh, heaven, the heavenly tabernacle, it says that they're within and they're surrounding the throne, but there's no one over. That was Satan's job. He was the anointed cherub that covereth. He was the one that was over. Now here on the earth, it's somebody else has taken his spot. But, but notice, uh, these beasts would have seen that. These four beasts would have seen the fifth beast lose his job and get demoted and get pushed down. And so because of, because of that, uh, there's no doubt that these beasts are very concerned over the holiness of God. And what's interesting about, about the, the anointed cherub, the fifth cherub, was that he wanted to be like the Most High. It's not like he started dropping bombs on God. He's, a, he's covering, like he's responsible, uh, hovering over the throne. He's responsible to say, holy, holy, holy. And there came a point where Satan said, you know what? God's not really anything special. Like, I, I'm the one that has all these jewels built in. I'm the one that creates beautiful music. I've got a lot to offer. And I'm not getting, you know, if you ever get this way, uh, sometimes you'll get this way guys at work. Sometimes, uh, I'm sure, ladies, if you're married and you're at, at your house, you get this way. I'm the one doing all the work. I'm the one carrying the load, and that person gets all the glory. So you actually know what Satan was thinking. You know how that feels. When you're the one doing the work and somebody else is getting the glory. That's how Satan felt. And so there came a point where he said, I don't want that anymore. I want to be, 
I want to be able to be like God. I'm not asking to be greater than God. He said, I will sit also among, uh, 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 among the, the congregation. He, he said, I will be like the Most High. So what are you saying? I'm not trying to tear, tear God down. I just feel like I should get my just desserts. Like you should, let's be fair about this, God. What do you say? I'm not asking to be above you. But I mean, let's be fair. Be careful of the concept of co-regency. There's a danger there. I'm not asking to be in charge. I'm just saying I ought to be treated equally. Okay, well, let me just remind you. If you get treated equally with the one that's in charge, you're in charge. If you get treated equally with the one that's in charge, you're in charge. I'm just asking for co-equal time here. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And so you can see that this fifth cherub is, is and by the way, let me, let me help you with something that uh, my wife helped me with years ago. If God, if God wants the person that's in authority over you to disappear, he can do it like that. If you're struggling with that authority, God can make that person, as Dick Van Dyke used to say, he can make that person very dead. He can get rid of them. If God hasn't gotten rid of the person that's over you, could it be that God wants him there? I mean, we don't have the teenagers in here tonight, so we don't have to you know, ride them. But could it be, teenagers, that God wants your mom to be an authority over you? Could be. We, we struggle with that because as Americans, we got our start by casting off King George III. He ain't got no right to tell us what to do. And I'm not saying there wasn't anything uh, of value there. And, and I think they had a point. I think that we deserve to have some, some, some representation in government. But I will tell you this. It's a very satanic thing when you start having difficulties with authority. And I tell you this from personal experience. Because it will not present itself as straight-up rebellion. It presents itself as righteousness, as fairness. It will hide. It will not come out and say, I'm going to overthrow the government. It comes out in, in, in a very sweet, deceptively satanic, nasty thing. And, it, and it's under the surface. We've got to be careful of it. We've got to be careful of it. How will you know? Here's what I'll know. I'll know. How do we know if you have that? It's this. It's just like the anointed cherub. I don't think that they're really worthy of being in that position. You know, I, I never had the chance. That, we never held the people's court like we should have in my family. As kids, as kids, to determine whether or not dad should have really been in charge. I mean, they never gave us an opportunity to vote. I mean, it's not very democratic of them. Ladies, if God has given you a husband, he's in charge. I don't expect the guys to say amen tonight. Amen. But you know what? Sometimes we say, well, he's not really doing the right thing. Wait, let me just take a quick wild guess at who knows the right thing. I'll bet you do. You know what the right thing is, and he's not doing it. Be careful with that. God will actually bless a woman who humbles herself and submits to a man who is an idiot. 
more than a woman who takes the reins and says, I'm going to get this thing done. Somebody's got to rescue this family. It's not very popular preaching. I understand that. But it's unfortunate. That is what the Bible says. <laughs> it's unfortunate for us as humans. Because there's something in us that says, when you start doing right, I'll start following you. What we really mean by that is, when you start letting me call the shots, I will follow you. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're not going to follow. If, if you're calling the shots, your leader's following you. Is this too far? We go too far tonight? You guys with me? Or are we shaving too close? Right? I'm telling you, if you get this thing right, it will help you a great deal. But it is very painful. It's very painful. So what should I do? Well, I tell you what. You should endure the pain until God brings you to a new stage. That's what you should do. Endure the pain of submission until God brings you to a new stage. And listen, I'm not talking about pastoral authority. I don't think we've got anybody that's got a problem with pastoral authority. But there may come a time when, when, when the devil gets in there and says, hey, this ain't right. He shouldn't be this. He shouldn't be that. We've got to be ready for that. We've got to be ready. And I'll give you a little clue. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. If you've got something uh, that you know is wrong, you should not say, well, I'm not going to say anything. No, that's, that's not right. Because that, that knowledge has to go somewhere. Typically, it goes to other believers. You know where it should go? It should go to the pastor. And the Bible says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. You know what I would do? Uh, and I'm hoping nobody does this because I'm, I'm scared to death. But I would get another brother that you trust, another sister. I would go to your authority if you're a wife. If you're not, I would go to another one of the deacons or, or a leader in the church, and I would say, look, I think this is an issue. Will you pray about this with me? I don't want to do the wrong thing. And then you get those people together, and you go to the leader, and you say, here's our issue. Here's our issue. And we, and we, want, to, we want to do what's right here, and we're concerned about this, and we want to talk to you about it. That's what you do. And you know what? That's not easy to do. It takes a lot of humility. But I'm telling you, that is the way to work through issues, whether you are uh, a, a teenager with an adult, whether you're a wife with a husband, whether you're uh, working at a job with your boss or in a church setting. That's how you do it. And uh, I, can, I can tell it's not uh, the hardest things that ever happened in my life have been having to go and face the music with my leaders. Those are the hardest things in the world. And you know what? Those are the times when I grew the most. I grew the most. And God will help you with that. Let's move on. Uh, look at uh, chapter 15, verse 7. Chapter 15, and by the way, if you're wondering, what's happening? I don't know where that came from tonight. So, and, you know, you can, uh, you can just flush it as far as I'm concerned. But if it's something that will help you, I, I think it, uh, it could be a blessing. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. So we see that they, these four beasts are tied to God's holiness. And then I want you to see, secondly, these beasts are the mediators of God's wrath. So you have, notice it says, one of the four beasts acting on behalf of all of them, gives to the seven angels, these messengers, 
the seven vials. The people who are about to have this wrath poured out, of the, out, out on them. At any point, they could have repented at the preaching of the angel that flies in the heaven. But, and received that, that forgiveness and mercy from God. But they decided not to. And we find that this beast comes and says, I'm going to bring this, these vials. And he hands them out to the angels one by one. And then we see letter C. Let's talk about the heavenly manifestation of the wrath of God. So what does it look like? This is not just some methodical ritual taking place. Uh, God is going to manifest his wrath. And when he does, something major takes place. Look at chapter 15, verse 8. And it says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So, of course, at this point, there are men in heaven. Uh, a lot of people from the church age and others have, have been taken captive. He's been taken captive. They're up there, but they're not allowed into the, into the temple at this point. And what you find, it's interesting that something similar happened when Moses finished building the tabernacle. Let's look at it in Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, verse 33. Exodus chapter 40, look at verse 33. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then, and notice they finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What covered the tabernacle? What covered the tent? Verse 3, 34, sorry, 34. A cloud. All right, verse 35, Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Notice the glory of the Lord. Sometimes we think of the Spirit of God as a cloud, but it's, it's referenced in all through Scripture as the glory of the Lord. The cloud is the glory of the Lord. Look at chapter, uh, look at 2 Chronicles. Go over to your right there. 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Go to uh, 2 Chronicles 7. So throughout um, the, the building of Solomon's temple, you had uh, all of this costly work going into it. And then Solomon prays this massive prayer in chapter 6. And then chapter 7, it says in verse 1, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying. So this is, uh, for your blank, this is Solomon. Uh, when he had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the house. And this is the cloud of God's glory, and it's coming in because of the grace of God. That's what this cloud of glory is all about. Look at the reaction in verse number 3. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. God's presence was felt, and they said, Wow, God, you are a good God. And they fell down and worshipped God. And so, I want you to see one more place in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The glory of the Lord filled the temple 
Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse number 19, he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? So most people here, know, most people here would not vape. Who wouldn't vape? No way in the world. I wouldn't smoke. Why? Because we've been made aware that that smoke contains particles that are very harmful to the lungs. So we're very aware of that. Now, we don't think about the food we eat much or what we drink, you know. Um, but uh, we, need, we need to keep track of what's going into our body because the body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Now, if you try to make your body spiritual... You can't. You can't make your body spiritual. It's physical. It's carnal. But it is the physical house in which the spirit is to live. So you obviously want to clean up. Like if you're going to clean up when, you know, company comes over, or maybe that's why you don't have company over because you just don't want to clean your house. Okay, why? Because we, we realize when a guest comes in, we want to put our best foot forward. Do you realize that, that, that if there's any guest in this body, it's us. We're the guest in this house. We don't even own it. He said, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. So we sometimes think, well, the spirit of God is like a guest in me. And I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to have him here. And what a privilege it is. No, he's the owner. I am the guy that's the guest. And yet that old nature thinks it belongs to me. So I can do whatever I want to. The Holy Spirit just needs to get along best he can. It's actually the flip. Can you imagine these people? You ever see them? They, they squat in a house for, you know, two or three years. And then someone comes along, the owner of the house, and wants to get rid of them. And they throw a fit. I saw somebody up in Detroit uh, on, on video. And these, this woman was just, I mean, raising a stink. And a guy who was just a reporter, he comes to the door and he's saying, um, you realize this is not your house and that's not your name on the deed and you need to get out of here. And she was just like, I'm not going anywhere. You can't get me to go anywhere. I live here. I have some rights. Guess what? She didn't have any rights. It's not her house. She's not supposed to be taken over the house and acting like, and not only that, she's borrowing, you know, borrowing. She's stealing electricity from the power line, you know, and cable or whatever else. And all the while, she's up on her high horse like, I have rights. You know, that reminds me of a lot of Christians. They're squatting in this house. It's not theirs. It's God's. They're stealing stuff and acting like it belongs to them. And the Lord comes along and says, hey, I want you to do this. And they're like, you, you know what? You can't push me too hard. And, then, and sometimes a Christian will come by and say, you know, God owns you. I, no, he doesn't. We've got to be careful, don't we? Because this temple... God desires to fill. What did he say in Ephesians chapter 5? Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. God wants us to be filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? I've heard about being filled with the Spirit all my life. And, and we think, well, being filled with the Spirit means you're, you, 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 you act. Well, what we typically do is we talk about the effects of being filled with the Spirit. Right? What you will do differently when the Spirit fills you. But you can't fake that. I should say, you can fake that. You, you can fake reading your Bible. You can fake praying. You can do these things in a fake way. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, what is the Spirit? How would you even know 
what the Spirit would do or be? How would you have any understanding of his characteristics? This is the Spirit of God. All Scripture is given by how? Inspiration of God. This is the Spirit of God on paper. Now, I'm not saying that the Holy Ghost is this physical book. But I don't know anything about the Holy Ghost that he didn't tell me in here. Do you, do you, that, that, I understand. I've been in church around Baptists all my life. I know what that sounds like. It sounds like heresy. There's nothing that you know about God that you didn't find out here. You know what that means? Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with and yielded to what he wrote. If you'll let that, that'll help you. Because some people say, Lord, send the Holy Ghost. He's already inside of you. The Holy Ghost is inside the believer. In fact, you're not saved unless you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So yielding to the Holy Spirit is the same as being filled with the Holy Ghost. When you are completely yielded. Now, the Holy Spirit does what he wants. And see, what we're talking about is we're saying being filled with the Spirit. We know that they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to preach or they began to speak in tongues and so forth. We talk about what the Spirit will do and we say, well, that's how you know that someone is filled with the Spirit based on their actions that they will take. But you know, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem that thought they were drunk with wine. Why? You can't make up what you think the Holy Spirit will do with you and say, I want to be filled, I want to be filled. You get into the Word of God and you listen, you read what He said, and then you say, Lord, I want that. What you said, I want in my life. And as you yield to that, you are filled with the Spirit of God. It's as simple as that. And it's actually as controversial as that. Because people say, I don't want just the Bible, I want the Holy Spirit. Well, how would you know if it was the Holy Spirit? Isn't it true that there is another spirit? Isn't it true that, that, uh, the, the, that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light? And his ministers are ministers of righteousness? They look like preachers? It's interesting, isn't it? How would you know? The only way you know is to hold it to the Bible. Hold it to the Bible. So it's not just a matter of knowing, knowing, knowing. I just want to know. Give me the doc- geek doctrines. Give me the word, Lord, and help me submit to everything in it. Help me, Lord. Help me. And as you are submitted, you will get filled. As you are thirsty, you will be filled. Oh, that was good. You know where that came from? It came from the water. You know why I drank it? Because I wanted to. You know the reason why we're not filled with the Spirit of God? Because we don't want to yield to Him. We don't desire Him. He's not going to do a second work in that sense. You've already got as much of the Holy Spirit as you'll ever have, but you haven't yielded to it. You know what frustrates a lot of Christians? They want the Holy Spirit to do something specific in their life. And they say, until you do that, I'm not really filled. But isn't it true that the Holy Spirit is God? And shouldn't he be calling the shots? You know what that means? I should yield to God, the Spirit. Whatever you want to do, God, I'm in for it. I'd love for you to do what you did in Acts chapter 2. A lot of Christians want that. A lot of Christians want that. Uh, This idea of a mass moving uh, where, where all these people are speaking in tongues. 
Some people say, I really want God to bring this victory in my life. I want to, you know what the best thing we can do? We can't make the Holy Spirit of God do anything. He's not a force. He is a person. But what we have to do is yield to him. And don't make him upset. Don't grieve him. We've got to finish out tonight. I want you to look at one more place. 2 Samuel chapter 22. And we'll close out. 2 Samuel chapter 22. So, what we're seeing in Revelation 15 is not God's glory and power associated with his grace. It's God's glory and power associated with his wrath and judgment. And here's the difference. I want you to see a distinction. In the wilderness tabernacle in Solomon's temple, the glory was a cloud. In Revelation 15, the glory is not a cloud. It's smoke. The cloud is God's glory manifested in mercy. The smoke is God's glory manifested in wrath. Why? Something is being burned. You can look at what is a cloud. A cloud is vapor. What is smoke? It is particles. It's made up of particles. Ash. Right? Look at 2 Samuel 22. It says, And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies, out of the hands of Saul. So historically, this is a song of victory over his enemies. But prophetically... It's a song about the second coming of Christ. There's things in, in this chapter that have never happened in David's lifetime. Look at verse number 7. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple. Which temple? Solomon's temple hadn't been built yet. And my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. So that tells you even the dragon is an imitator, uh, counterfeit version of God. Not that God looks like a dragon, but that the dragon is a warped version of God himself because we know the dragon, Job uh, chapter 38, talks about the fire that comes out and the smoke out of his nostrils. But this is God. Look at verse 10. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet, and he rode upon a cherub. And did fly, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomfited them. And the channels of the sea appeared, the foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. That's what's happening in the heavenly temple in chapter 15 of Revelation. And what does it say? It says the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, we know that uh, in the Old Testament, the, the, the time of the uh, Levitical priesthood, the, the Day of Atonement, once a year, the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies and carry that bowl of blood in his hand from that sacrificed animal. And he would pour it on top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. When he sacrificed his life, he offered his blood, the blood of the covenant, on the mercy seat. And because of that, the blood of Christ blazed a highway straight to the heart of God. You can go directly to the heart of God through Jesus Christ. But there's coming a time when that highway is going to close down. God is going to put those vials into the hands of the seven angels. No one will be able to go into the Holy of Holies. 
And uh, it'll be too late to humble yourself. It'll be too late to pray. It'll be too late to repent. Too late to get saved. It'll be too late for everything. And uh, I want to tell you, this book has not missed in 6,000 years. It is, if it says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Everything God says has happened down to the minutest detail. I'm happy to tell you that that day, the highway being closed down, is not today. It's still open. The way to the mercy seat is still open. Your sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ's blood. And even, even, uh, even more important to remember is that it's still open for everybody in America. We can still get people to the mercy seat.